Well, good morning. Um, so, first comes the wake-up call. It's a call that declares that, A, as Darcy told us, everything's not okay. But also that, B, there's still hope. Then comes the need to consider where you came from, what details in your past need first acknowledgement, and then draw you to thanksgiving or perhaps confession and repentance. Then comes the reality that you live in a world in which there is real, actual cause for joy. Acknowledging and doing business with the past is one thing, but to live there only leads to a hindrance to see the reality of your present, the place where God puts you. And now, before we celebrate hope incarnate, we must consider the future. What path will we take? What are the marks that we're heading in the right direction? And I'll give it away up front, by the way. Today's thesis statement is that true life is found only in Jesus Christ. To put anything else but Christ at the center of your existence is a path that leads only to death. We're continuing today in a Dickens of a Advent series, an, a series themed around the story of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And in week one, Darcy showed a clip um, from the Bill Murray classic Scrooge, and last week we saw a clip from the Muppet Christmas Carol, and um, this week we'll be in stave four, where Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas yet to come, or the ghost of Christmas future. To help us with the context, I'd like uh, for us to watch a clip from my personal favorite version of A Christmas Carol. And to set this particular version up, we're actually going to be starting towards the end of the Ghost of Christmas present section, but take it away. This is the home of your overworked, underpaid employee, Bob Cratchit. What's she cooking, a canary? Surely they have more food than that. Look on the fire. That, uh, oh, that's your laundry. Ah, not yet, children. We must wait for Tiny Tim. Coming, Father. I'm coming. Oh, my! Look at all the wonderful things to eat! We must thank Mr. Scrooge. Tell me, Spirit, what's wrong with that kind lad? Much, I'm afraid. If these shadows remain unchanged, I see an empty chair where Tiny Tim once sat. Then that means... Tim will... Where did they go? Spirit, where are you? Don't go. You must tell me about Tim. Don't go. 
events can yet be changed. <laughs> oh, I've never seen a funeral like this one. Aye, no mourners, no friends to bid him farewell. Oh, well, let's rest a minute before we fill it in, eh? But he ain't going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit. Whose lonely grave is this? <gasps> Why, yours, Ebenezer. The richest man in the cemetery. <laughs> Please, oh, oh. Oh, That was a clip from Mickey's Christmas Carol, released in 1983. Uh, this cartoon, uh, I remember as being on TV constantly as I was a kid, and it just hits a chord that as I watched it again this week, I was struck by like how many lines I remembered. I'll give it to Disney that they have this way of turning a phrase so that it sticks with you. That line from Pete, the who played the Ghost of Christmas Future, as he just slaps Scrooge into the grave and says that he'll be the richest man in the cemetery. That line was, for some reason, fused into my conscience. It works well with Charles Dickens, who writes a powerful tale, of course. One critic, uh, writing some 40 years after A Christmas Carol was released, said that A Christmas Carol, even if it was to blame for the flood of terrible joviality and sentimentality poured upon us with every Christmas, has touched the widest audience that is capable of being moved by literature. High and honest praise for Dickens. So in this week's section, we looked at Scrooge's time with the ghost of Christmas uh, yet to come, a figure that in almost every iteration of the story is cast by something like the Grim Reaper or Death. Some versions warn Scrooge that he must now see uh, that which all men fear. In short, he is shown a vision of what the world would be like after his death. The men he used to do business with now joke about how their attendance at Scrooge's funeral is dependent on whether or not lunch will be provided. 
He's shown a vision of his house servants who have stolen items from Scrooge's home in order to sell them. And then he's shown the Cratchit family who are mourning the loss of their now dead son, Tiny Tim, because he didn't receive the medical attention that he needed. And finally, he's shown his own grave, which acts as the proverbial nail in the coffin, so to speak, as Scrooge begs the Spirit to tell him whether these shadows are things that must be or instead things that might be. In other words, is it too late to change? Sobbing at the ground on the foot of the Spirit, Scrooge is suddenly finding now that he's back in his own bedroom. One of the reasons why I love the Disney version of the story is because Disney attempted to do other things with the character of Scrooge in the following years. Uh, Are there any DuckTales fans in the house? I'll tell you. Just the one. (laughs) Yeah. DuckTales was a, as a TV show that was popular in the late 80s that was loosely inspired of what life might have been like for Scrooge after his visit from the spirits. Uh, in the show, Scrooge, who is now Scrooge McDuck, the world's richest duck, uh, adopts these three nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, because Donald you know, joins the Navy, and evidently you know, these, these kids just keep getting passed around to different uncles. Um, but they go on adventures, and, and together they discover that family, not money, is Scrooge's true legacy. And there's this one particular episode where Scrooge's R&D inventor, um, he creates this duplicator ray. And the boys see this, and they get all excited, and they take it to their Uncle Scrooge, and they say, Uncle Scrooge, isn't this great? There's this duplicator ray, um, and now you can duplicate your fortune. And Uncle Scrooge responds by saying, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. I don't trust any dollar I haven't earned. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the euphoria that can come from the realization that God's restorative power breathes new creation power into our lives. You see, church history is rightly filled with stories of individuals who have come face to face with the life-changing grace that our Lord offers through the work of His Son. On Christmas morning, Scrooge might be a bumbling idiot who is rightly tripping over himself, spreading joy and generosity, and that is the right response for the kind of experience that Scrooge has had. But it's important for us to remember, at least for right now, that it was a new life that Scrooge was offered, not just a new day. He was a man who needed to learn a lesson about hope and peace and love and joy. He needed to be shown what a sacrificial life looks like, one that has other things at the center of his life rather than simply his bank account. Still, that being said, The world needs businessmen, I'd say. The world needs what we might call conservative wisdom when it comes to how we spend the limited resources that we have. In that light, Ebenezer Scrooge, and Ebenezer Scrooge, who had his priorities straight, would actually be worth a quite deal in this world. You see, the problem was never that Scrooge was rich. The problem was that money was God. When money was at the center of his existence, he was blind to not only the blessing that he could have been to others, but also blind to the blessings that he could have received from others. Money 
It's a helpful tool, but it makes a very poor God. When the love of Jesus Christ is instead at the center of our hearts, that's when we are best equipped to live the life that God intends us to live. In Luke 16, starting in in verse 13, Jesus, he puts it this way, no servant could serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, you, you cannot serve God and money. The application here is not for people to live in some moneyless society, but rather to live with God at the center of everything that they do. There is no aspect of your life in which God does not want full control. We're going to spend the next three weeks after Christmas in a series called Surrender, in which we look at the importance of surrendering all to God. And we actually might return to that series, that theme, later on in the year with other things. But for this first part, we're going to spend three weeks looking at the theme of surrender in regards to power, sex, and money. For those of you keeping track, Lent starts in 10 weeks, 10 short weeks. And when it does, we're going to preach through Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 5, um, verses 22 through 23, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In short, what does it look like when God alone is in His proper place at the center of your heart? What would the fruit of a life with God at the center, rather than money or rather than sex or rather than power or, or anything else that we might put in there, what would the fruit of such a life be if Christ was at the center? If, if before being introduced to someone, you were told that that person had Christ at the center of their heart, uh, what would you expect that person to be like? Ah, they're going to be one of those religious people, you might say, and they're going to bring up God at really awkward times, and they're going to say funny things that I'd really just rather not hear them say, and I'd really just rather not meet them. You might think that. Heck, I might think that. But Paul says, no, no, no. You want to know what it really looks like to have God at the center of your life? It's going to look like love. It's going to look like genuine joy. It's going to look like you being a peacemaker. They are going to be patient to you and kind. You're going to be patient to them and kind. When you fall, um, they are going to help you and get back up and help you get back up. When you wrong them, they won't, be wrong, they won't wrong you back, but instead they're going to be kind to you. They're going to return the mistakes that you've made with kindness. In their faithfulness to God, they will be gentle towards others and in control of their own behavior. That's what it looks like to walk in the path of Christ. That's what it looks like when you're serving God. But before that verse about the fruit of the Spirit... Paul makes it clear that if your life is bearing other sort of fruit, it's going to lead only to destruction. It's going to lead only to death. And he gives some examples there in Galatians 5. He he mentions sexual immorality 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, as Paul might say, the wages of sin is death. Paul says that in Romans. And hopefully we know that the full verse is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must be aware the idea that entrance into this kingdom of God's is not dependent upon a debit credit system of sins versus virtues. Let me make this perfectly clear. We are all sinners, and we are all in need of a Savior because sin creates distance between us and our holy God. For him to simply wave away sin and say, ah, that's no big deal, that would mean that he would have to cease to be a holy God. And not only is God not interested in that, it's not in his character to be unholy. God is holy and he desires his creation to be intimately united with him in a holy union. The thing is, for that to happen, sin needs to be dealt with. This is why John 3.16 has become one of the most well-known passages for the church. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, that the world might be saved through Him. When we repent from sin, we change direction, right? We walk towards God's kingdom. Um, you might think of it like this. Uh, think of like you're walking through the woods and you want to make sure you're headed in the right direction, right? The forest is thick and there's all sorts of distractions, but ultimately your goal, ultimately the ultimate thing that you want to be walking towards is King Jesus's kingdom. God has placed markers all throughout the woods to help you know that you are moving in the right direction. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity, etc., etc. But there's also markers that show us that we are moving in the wrong direction. Hate and jealousy and greed and gossip and infidelity. In A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, he shows us an Ebenezer Scrooge who worshipped money. Money was at the center of his universe. What is it for, for you and what is it for me? But what are those things that we're placing in our lives as more important than God? The point that we should take away from spending time in this story, this Christmas, is that when we place anything, other than Jesus Christ at the center of our universe, at the center of our existence, it is a path that will lead ultimately only to death. You might ask, well, aren't there other places in the world that I can find life other than Jesus? No. No, there aren't. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. I believe that if you have felt goodness, and it really has been real goodness and not just pleasure, if you felt life itself, 
If you've truly felt love and joy and peace, then I believe that you have felt Jesus calling you home. You have felt Jesus calling you towards the kingdom. The question is not whether or not you have felt the Lord's blessing. The question is whether or not you've had the eyes to see that they were from the Lord. Scrooge did not, at least until he was given a powerful wake-up call. You and I might sit there and we read such a story and we might say to ourselves, man, I tell you, if God did something like that for me, that, that would do it, right? That would make me repent. That would make me just turn my life around if God actually put me, like, if I go to sleep tomorrow night and, you know, I get visited by three spirits and that would really help me turn the error of my ways. If God would just present himself in some sort of visible form, then I'd pay attention, God. There's this fascinating and also very cryptic parable that is told by Jesus just after the verses that we read in Luke 16, um, beginning in in Luke 16 and uh, starting in verse 19. He doesn't say once upon a time, but anyway. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, who desired just to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. These weren't just like happy dogs. These weren't just like, you know, Lassie and Eddie from Frasier. These were wild, crazy dogs. The poor man died now, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died as well and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus there by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, uh, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, well, between us, is this great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here uh, to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers uh, so that they may warn them, lest they may also come to this terrible place of torment. But Abraham said, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, well, no, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to him from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, I don't know, even if somebody like raises from the dead. So even if you are new to Bible study, I hope that you can appreciate the idea that you wouldn't want to rush into a text like this and start making, like, blanket interpretations. I remember my New Testament professor at St. Mary's would often tell us that anytime we're reading a text 
uh, in Scripture. We should be on the lookout for words or phrases that kind of turn up the volume, either words or phrases or maybe context. When Jesus tells a story that includes Abraham and Moses, those aren't like details that we should fly by. When you hear Jesus tell a story and he includes a detail such as a great chasm that exists between sinners and glory, and then even goes so far as to drop a comment about how somebody being raised from the dead, your ears should perk up. There's lots in the story that we could focus on, which we won't today. Suffice it to say that I don't think this story is where you should turn to if you want an instruction manual on how heaven and hell works. No, for us today, I want us to think about that line towards the end. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. One of the things that was really interesting to me as I studied this text was that the rich man who isn't named later church tradition, some later church traditions calls the rich man dives, but that's not in the text. Um, the rich man, however, knew Lazarus's name, and therefore you might imply that he knew something of Lazarus's condition. He, he knew something of his situation. There have been times when he had passed by. How many times did that rich man pass by Lazarus on his way in and out of the gate? At least once a day, maybe? How many times did he say, eh, maybe tomorrow, man? You know, again and again and again. See, the thing is that the rich man, he didn't just miss the blessing that he could be to Lazarus. He missed out on what Lazarus could have blessed him with. Just like Scrooge. What did Scrooge miss? He didn't just miss the fact that he should have been offering his, the Cratchit family some sort of like, you know, 19th century version of health insurance. He, he missed out on the blessing that his involvement in this, you know, Scrooge didn't have many friends. Bob Cratchit was about probably the closest thing that Scrooge had to a friend. He missed out on what that family's life could have meant to his life, on how the blessing could have been for him. And also, of course, the, the, the text goes on or the story goes on to say that Scrooge had missed out on his family life as well. What do we miss? What is the thing that we're passing by every day and saying, eh, maybe tomorrow? What's the thing that is keeping us off the path and making us walk in a different direction than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or self-control? What is the maturity that we're sacrificing in order to go solve the needs of the moment? What if we lived our life with our eyes open to the path of love that God has set before us? That is not an easy thing. We can't just say, hey man, lead a path of love, go. No. I mean, what did Jesus say? The story, look to Moses and the prophets. What did you have? What would it take for you to actually repent and turn your life towards a path of love, towards the path of the kingdom? Oh, well, God, if you would just speak to me, um, that would get it done. Really? Would it? If God came through those doors and said, now I want to tell you all about the importance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self control, would that do it? 
If God audibly told you all, this is what I want you to do, okay, well, I guess that settles the problem then. Sin's not going to be a problem from here on out because God told me. Now, I believe that we need two things to do that. First of all, we need a relationship with Jesus Christ. First of all, we need the relationship with God, the relationship with Christ that bridges that chasm, that says, I am a sinner, I am in need of a Savior, and I cannot trust in my own righteousness in order to bridge this great chasm that has been in front of me. I am going to live my life in service to Him. I am going to die to myself. I'm going to die to my own needs. I'm going to die to my own pleasures and um, my self-centeredness. And instead, I'm going to give my life to the one who gave me life. I'm going to give my life to the one who defines life. And I think that God ordered it this way. We need each other. Because again, this all plays into the truth that Christianity was never supposed to be a solo sport. It was never supposed to be something that you did alone with God in a closet somewhere. Your life with God will have an effect on other people, and other people are going to affect your life. This is why the church is so important. This is why New Hope Community Church is so important, that we do life together that we remind each other, hey, hey, not that path, not that one, get, get, get back on this path. When we call out greed in each other, when we call out envy and we call out sin, when we, can we be that community? Can we be a community so centered on Christ that, that when someone calls out sin in us, that we were able to say, we were able to have the strength to say, you're right. I lost the path, I lost the plot, and I need to be pointed in a better direction. I need to be pointed towards God's kingdom. And also, would we be the kind of community where we could encourage one another on the right path, on the path of love, when we could kind of say, hey, hey, I know the rest of the world hates the idea that you just gave that guy your last nickel, but I noticed that you just gave him everything. I notice the love that you are showing in your life and I just want to celebrate that. And I want to help you, I want to help support you because you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. May we be that kind of community. May we be a community that helps each other see the blessings that are in our lives and the blessings that we could even receive from others that we're passing by. Tomorrow, we're going to spend some time in that incarnation life. We're going to spend some time in the incarnation celebration. That's what Christmas is all about, that, that this Jesus, that God tabernacled with his people, with this Jesus, and showed us the way of love, the way of love that would lead him all the way to the cross, but would lead us to new creation. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to this community. I thank you for um, your truth that leads us face to face with our own mortality. 
with our own sinfulness, yet chooses to not leave us there. Father, you are a God, you are our God who sees every inch of our souls, every inch of ourselves, sees the sin that we don't even realize, and then continues looking us into the eye. You hell, you, you hold on and continue looking us in the face after everything that we are not, and you say, I love you anyway. And then you go to the cross and you die for us. And you start the kingdom work of putting this world back together again, one day at a time. Father, help us find that path of love. Help us to walk that path. And the things that distract us will lead us not towards those things, but rather help us find that path of love, to find your kingdom, to seek first your kingdom, and help us to be a community that reminds each other what that path looks like. Love and joy and peace and grace and generosity and kindness. Father, we ask all of this knowing that none of this we can do with our own courage, our own strength. No, we rely on you. None of it can be from our own righteousness. It must be you. For in Christ, there is life. Amen.